te matikai tō hōreri whanganga ki te matawai whakanumia te Māori. Welcome to all to our second lecture in our, um, I'm still trying to find a name for this, uh, lecture series, summer lecture series, free lecture series, kukihina hina lecture series, we might come up with a name by next year. Um, being on this battle site is important. Uh, it's important for what for the history of our city, for uh, the history of Nairo Toro Moana, and it's important uh, for us as Anglicans um, because there were Anglicans on both sides of that battle, and Anglicans uh, trying to make the best of it, and Anglicans not trying to make the best of it. So, it's a deeply Anglican story as well as lots of other people's stories. So, we need to hold the story uh, and to keep retelling it. It's also a story about the Treaty of Waitangi. And so, whenever I talk to young people about what happened here, I always start with the treaty and how I understand the hopes of what that was about and how those engaged in it saw the future uh, and that's been informed um, by David Williams who spoke here this time last year and by others and it's a story about how this was a failure of that relationship and of those hopes so how do we build our future for me by going back and knowing what that story is all about so I'm really glad you will come here tonight. Uh, I first met Buddy uh, seven years ago. He never met him before and he turned up and he had this crazy idea about marking the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gate Park with some pretty grand plans, most of which came off. And we owe Buddy a huge um, debt of gratitude for those several months of events. He pulled together the main trust that, that organised that and funded that. He organised most of those events, if we're honest. And I'm not sure he actually got any sleep for a few days before the commemorations. And they were historic for all sorts of reasons. And that, that was because of Buddy's work. And we've enjoyed continuing to work with him over the years since then. So, uh, and that culminated a couple of years ago when he and Cliff Simon, another Krishna, wrote a book called Victory at Gate Park, question mark. And if you'd like to buy a copy of that book, they'll be on sale at Half Time and Artworks for $40. Um, he's also uh, organised flags for the Pukehina flag that was flying here for the battle, and if you'd like to buy one of those, they're $50, and they'll also be on sale at Half But Buddy comes from a wide range of uh, expertise and experience, really. He's worked in the business area, worked in the public service, he was director of the Waitangi Tribunal at a really interesting time in the tribunal's life. Uh, he was involved in recruiting historians on putting their findings online, uh, and more lately he's worked as a resource consent consultant. But at the heart of all that is his passion for an understanding of the treaty which some of us saw last year when we stood the council and some of the raru-raru that happened <coughs> around that campaign and when the new councillors were sworn in. So 
Uh, when we were thinking about who could speak about the treaty this year, Buddy's name came up and was a, was a first choice. So I'm really glad that um, you're here with us tonight, Buddy. And he can talk more about himself if he wants. Can I just say before we start, a few housekeeping things. Uh, if you brought a phone like me, uh, you make sure it's on silent. Mine is now on silent. Uh, Ah, well, that goes on to noises when I come here, so that's, that's not great. So mine's now on silent. And last week we did have somebody who didn't turn their phone on silent. So turn your phone on silent and people won't look at you. Uh, if you need to go to the toilets, they're back down the passageway and uh, diagonally across the hall and follow the sign. The toilets, I think they're all up and one of them had fallen down. If you're in a hall, turn left too soon and you need to kind of go one in the wrong. Uh, if there's a fire or something, we just regulate down on the car park. Um, we are collecting a donation. This is a free event, but the donation helps pay for the koha that we need to pay at the end of the month. So if you want to contribute to that, that's all good too. Uh, and the books and um, flag are for sale. And after about an hour, we're going to have a rest. These are not, these pews are not designed for comfort. They're designed to keep people awake for the duration of the service. For when they were designed, within an hour. So after about an hour, we'll stop and you can have a little move around. I'm very grateful I get some back seat most of the time. <coughs> the bishop. So, uh, yes. Using a mic? Can you be using a microphone? I won't, but he will. Does he want to go Right, uh, he's got it on. He's wired up, ready to go. He's got his wireless mic. So if you can't hear, put your hand up, and I'm pretty sure we'll be alright. The man is attached, ready to go. So please welcome Buddy. Waitangi. 
I remember that day there were several things. Um, one being watching um, what was more or less the last fly pass for the fighter arm of the New Zealand Eagles. So that's the whole Eagles up there. Um, and they could get a display of skyhooks. Um, the other was observing from my seat behind her just how small in stature the Queen is. And then the stunning side of all the warships um, anchored in the bay lighting up uh, at dusk after the flag lowering ceremony. But what I remember most about that day, apart from another amazing sight, which was a fleet of uh, waka uh, moving together onto the Waikini beach uh, in unison, what I remember more than anything were the bold words spoken by Archbishop Bakahuyuhi Burka who seemingly speaking directly to the Queen had this to say. Yes, Queen, 150 years ago, a compact was signed. A covenant was made between two people. But since the signing of that treaty, our partners have marginalised us. You have not honoured the treaty. The language of this land is yours. The custom yours, the media by which we tell the world who we are, are yours. What I have come here for is to renew the ties that made us a nation in 1840. I don't want to debate the treaty. I don't want to renegotiate the treaty. I want the treaty to stand firmly as the unity, the means by which we are made one nation. The treaty is what we are celebrating. It is what we are trying to establish so that my Tenorana Tiritanga is the same as your Tenorana Tiritanga. And so I come to Waitangi to cry for the promises that you've made and for the expectations our people have had 150 years ago. And so I conclude as I remember the songs of our end as I remember the history of our land, I weep here on the shores of the Bay of Islands. I want to approach this discussion about our treaty tonight here in the New Zealand by looking overseas <clears throat> in the United States of America in a world where our perception of the USA is diminished, dominated by political polarisation and the present seemingly intent on ruling the Twitterverse. It is sometimes hard to remember that once upon a time we looked upon that country as the leading bastion of freedom, democracy and the expression of humanitarianism and humanitarian ideas. These days, there is the last thing to think of there's yet another mass shooting dominates the news feeds. But in my frequent visits to that country, I observed that one of the strengths of the American education system is the focus placed on the teaching of civics. That is, requiring students to learn about how local, state, and federal government works. Americans have been on flag on the ceremonies. And while it may look like jingoism to an outside 
observer, the confirmation of civics, the love of country and patriotic expectations <coughs> is a powerful formula. When you think, when you look back to the fundamental government documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you have a heavy combination which should result in the establishment of a strong guiding foundation for taking that country forward. I really like the clear and concise and unambiguous language in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson drafted that document in 1776. On the 6th of February 1840, 64 years later, we signed our own national document, the Treaty of Waitangi. It may have been because of the circumstances surrounding the Declaration of Independence that none of the thinking that suffused that document found its way into the thinking behind our treaty. And I regret very much that our treaty has none of the fine sentiments of the Declaration. I think there is much to do with its original intent, which one cynic described as being a device to pacify savages. It was not so much to do with nation building, but more to assist with the speedy acquisition of Māori land. The treaty granted the Crown exclusive right to acquire Māori land, and the flood of legislation which followed backed that up. One for quite a few years, um, to 19, 1970s. And that all began to change with the rise of the ad hoc Māori nationalist movements who insisted that rather than being a founding document, the treaty was a tool. On the treaty, um, as it was on Waitangi Day 1990, became a catch cry and led by the courageous Northern Māori MP Machirata on the political front and by community leaders such as the indomitable Dane Cooper, who did the famous land march on Parliament, change became inevitable. The Labour government of Norman Kirk introduced the Treaty of Waitangi Act in 1975, leading to the creation of the Waitangi Tribunal, more or less a permanent commission of inquiry, charged with investigating and making recommendations on treaty claims. At that time, only contemporary claims uh, could be made, but that changed under the 1987 Labour Government of David Longy and Māori Affairs Minister Kuruwiki, who amended the Act so that claims dating back to 1840 and earlier could be investigated. Can I just address a moment for a quick word on governments and treaty issues? One of the interesting things I've noticed is that when it comes to treaty issues, governments adopt a reasonably bipartisan approach. It's my observation that Labour-led governments make the major policy uh, shifts, radical even, 
and national governments refine and cement processes to deal with those issues in place. I recall prior to the election of Jim Bowles national government uh, in the early 1990s, had there was some new concern that the new government would not push on with the treaty settlements work of the previous Labour government. But they proved to be all founded in the new Minister of Justice, uh, Mr. Doug Graham, who held a treaty portfolio carried on seamlessly. Fortunately, we have none of this. I don't know if you can read it. Oops, you know, we're going anywhere.
first article of the treaty is about decision and sovereignty. The second article is about the retention of Maori control over the lands, forests, fisheries, etc. So long as they wish. Importantly, at that time, the second article also gave the Crown sole right to purchase land. The third article is about Maori having more rights and privileges of British citizens. Interestingly, because of our unity, there is also a really discussed sentence added at the insistence of Bishop Pompeo, the recently arrived and not yet all Catholic leader. It's sometimes called the fourth so when Pompeo agreed to the sentence, Williams read it out. The governor wishes you to understand that all the Maoris who shall join the Church of England, who shall join the Wesleyans, who shall join the Pikopa, the Church of Rome, and those who retain their Maori practices shall have the protection of the British government. What's been provided by Mr. Patterson and company is that reinterpretation or attempts to amend the treaty began almost from the day of the sign. The key issue was land, so in the period immediately following the treaty signing, there was universal support by Pākehā for recognition of Māori title over land. That was because many of them held land use of their own. And if Māori title was not recognised, then their titles would not be recognised either. <clears throat> the cession of Māori sovereignty carried with it the cessation of Māori title. So you can see the binder. Accordingly, the deed holders uh, were opposed to the cession of sovereignty on the grounds of self-interest including, of course, the New Zealand Company with an alleged claim to 20 million acres of the country. But the New Zealand Company soon changed its tune when it found it was unable to corner uh, the land purchase and sale market and instead moved to rush the treaty and its provisions. Its new stance on treaty became one of opposition with its representative telling the House of Commons in London that Treaty made with naked savages could be treated by any lawyer as anything but a crazy worthy device for using and pacifying savages. So the birth of our formal treaty was in turn praised and derided, but has remained a resilient document nevertheless. That's been the result of several things. One, of course, has been the creation of the Waikanae Tribunal in 1975. More or less a permanent commission inquiry, its work quickly exposed the need for more certainty in the area of treaty definition. But then that also led to an examination of the roles of the three arms of government. Parliament, all the elected members, the executive, which is more or less the cabinet of the day, and the judiciary. <clears throat> Who should be responsible for defining the who, what and how of the treaty. Beginning in the late 1970s and through the 80s and 90s, it finally fell to the courts 
to interpret the treaty in a way that would give the treaty effect in law. This occurred in 1987 with the delivery of a judgment by Lord Cook of Thornton. Who later went on to sit in the House of Lords of England as a ruler, the only Kiwi to achieve that distinction. Um, derived from his time as President of the Court of Appeal, Lord Cook established these principles in response to the, um, what was a landmark case at the time, it was the New Zealand Mining Council versus the Attorney General in a dispute over Section 9 of the State-Owned Enterprises Act. That act said in its preamble, nothing in this act shall permit the Crown to act in a manner that is inconsistent with the principles of the Treaty of Waiting. Convenient to go looking at the fact that those principles haven't actually been decided. <coughs> um, so it meant that those principles were left to the court to decide as a result of that case. The principles elicited by um, Lord Cook gave legal recognition to a special relationship between the Crown and the Māori. Lord Cook said, the treaty created an enduring relationship of a fiduciary nature akin to a partnership. Each party accepting a positive duty to act in good faith, fairly, reasonably, and honourably towards the other. This principle of partnership continues to shape the legal relations between the Crown and Māori to this day. So, how does this work in the real world that you and I live I think we'll take the rest of the night to examine the principle question in detail. So, I'll just stick to the working example that I know well. The Resource Management Act 1991, Section 8 of Part 2 of the Act, requires all parties utilising the Act to take into account the principles of the Treaty of Waiting. Now, in almost all cases, the people wanting something done under the jurisdiction of the Act are not the Crown, they're just ordinary people like you and me. The Treaty Partner, the Crown is a Treaty Partner, um, they just go as citizens. So any principles that refer solely to crown actions, so there's a principle, for example, of fair compensation, um, those can be set aside as far as ordinary people are concerned. So in my experience, there are three principles that are relevant in these circumstances. The first one is the principle of partnership, which we just talked about. Um, which the Court of Appeal, as you've seen, and the Environment Court has interpreted as meaning the parties acting in faith, etc., towards each other, and most importantly, consulting with each other. The second is the principle of mutual benefit, uh, and in environmental terms, which is where I work, that means um, not a monetary payment um, or monetary exchange, but deciding doing something under the Act will not just protect the environment, but actually try and enhance the environment. So that's the mutual benefit that is beneficial to both parties and us, the wider community. The third is the Act of Protection of Rangitivitan. 
simply means that you put them forward and develop a proposal such as uh, a new subdivision. Um, the developer will engage with the correct Tungtapinua party that is protecting their status as the appropriate Tungtapinua people of the land. These principles are relatively simple, easily understood, accepted by all participants, and cemented in place as good practice by everyone involved. That's how I envisage treaty principles should work. That is, they are incorporated seamlessly into the lives of our communities in a way which adds, not detracts, to our heritage and culture. The inheritance of all of us. All of us. <coughs> if you put a bit more Justice Matthew Palmer <coughs> had this to say in 2015, the Treaty of Waitangi and its principles should be interpreted broadly, generously, and practically in new and changing circumstances as they arise. As an agreement upholding the Crown's legitimacy and governing New Zealand for the benefit of all New Zealanders in exchange for the Crown's active protection of the Rangatiratanga or authority of Papua Iwi and Māori generally to use and control their own interests especially in relation to land, fisheries, and te reo Māori, and their other tangible and intangible tāonga or valued possessions. The Crown is also ensure that Māori enjoy the rights and privileges of Ārira New Zealanders. Since this agreement involved continual continuing relationship, akin to the partnership between the Crown and the Māori, the party should act reasonably and in good faith towards each other, <coughs> consulting with each other, compromising where appropriate, and reasonably reducing past breaches of the treaty. It's that In new and changing circumstances as they arise, which the detractors miss, because we live in an ever-changing world and matters change or evolve to new changing circumstances. So, for example, if there were any traffic laws in 1840, they would certainly not be between between. There's a changing world in our laws in their implementation and interpretation change with them. The guiding objective surely be the delivery of justice or in more prosaic terms, doing the right thing. I'm well aware that for some, the truth is regarded as an impediment, a source of division, grave training, past the duty of day, etc., etc. I know people sitting behind me how we that it's not my people who are saying these things. The anti treaty rhetoric is rising and reminds me of the ruling by Justice James Prendergast who said that the Treaty of Waitangi was ruthless because it had been signed between the Civilised Nation and the Rakhia Savages, who were not capable of signing the treaty. Since the treaty had not been incorporated into domestic law, it was a simple nullity. He was the first to be rescued and will definitely not be the last. But thank goodness, as demonstrated by 
and completely bipartisan approach taken by every government, we do have a living treaty enshrined in law and the claims investigation and settlement process that is the envy of every other indigenous people living in any other colonized country in the world. My Aboriginal friends in Australia are a prime example, as are the First Nations people of America and the Inuit people of Northern Canada and Alaska who cry when they hear about the processes that we have for dealing with grievances with the Crown. They envy us for our forward-looking inclusive policies, which take cultural matters seriously and put enormous effort into addressing past grievances. Waitangi Day here in Tarana, uh, might 180 years since the signing of the treaty, uh, and here we've begun growing a tradition of marking Waitangi Day with a festival that reflects our multicultural, multi-ethnic community. <clears throat> As part of the day's activities this year, on Thursday, for the first time in Tarana, we had a citizenship ceremony. Um, this included uh, a Miki Pokotoe to all the new Kiwis, a Waiata, and then everybody in the crowd, crowd of thousands, stood up to sing the national anthem video. Some of our new Kiwis went. The other moment from Thursday was at the end of the day when the flag was lowered and a couple of other groups sang Te Hongamu. A beautiful ending to a great day, such a fitting day to welcome a new group of kings. For me, thinking about the treaty and its place today uh, is sometimes not a comfortable place. I oscillate between being depressed by the negativity that surrounds our nation's founding document and the increasingly strident calls for it to be abandoned. Uh, for moments of pure joy, as of the week, um, last Thursday when we celebrated Waitangi Day at the historic village. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> On balance, I tend to think that the journey is not yet done, but we are definitely getting there. Three years all about a year concept that most kids are familiar with. So, using this approach, we're dealing with three claims made up of the treaty. All you're doing is finding out how to find out that you wasn't appeared out of doing something about it. It's pretty simple stuff really. No, the treaty is not a joke. And neither should be set fire to and burns or as some have suggested, sure it's not perfect. It has laws and imperfections, but all that does is make it a human document. The important thing is that it belongs to us, all of us. And we are sincere about nationhood and belong to the wonderful country that we share um, in this humble document deserves respect and reverence rather than derision.
mind answering questions? Am I happy to repeat if you're saying questions? Sorry, I looked at the document of the council recently. You mentioned the Resource Management Act. Yes. And uh, it was to do with the um, looking at uh, issues over resource management uh, building things. And um, there were groups of uh, people there listed who were to be consulted over these issues. And I saw your name on the list. And so um, am I right in saying that you're one of the consultants that uh, your particular group uh, represents? That's so? Yes. Yes. I represent two groups in China. And uh, so, buddy, do you feel that uh, this process is being carried out fairly uh, on all parties? And mm. where people are looking to get resource consent to, say, to build a new industrial building, and um, your group would uh, be contacted by the council, and um, you would then uh, consult with the, the developer. And, uh, Yes, it's not a cheap process eh, because most of those developers have been there on this trail so many times before. So they know that what we're looking for is, you know, is where you want your development to happen. Um, is it an archaeological site? You know, is it a possibility that we have earthworks, something that's stuck up? What do we do about that? Uh, it could be we're looking at, say, they're on the edge of the harbour. What are your proposals on the developer to do something about capturing the sediment runoff um, from, say, a rain event, um, which will get into the harbour? Our concerns for the health of the harbour, of course. Um, and similar such um, cultural and environmental things like that. Yeah, the reason I ask this question is I have uh, beside me my friend who was, as I said, developer. Right. And um, he was informed by the council that. Uh, was on hold until he consulted with the uh, local group, that wasn't your group, um, and his uh, experience was to receive an invoice through his, uh, through his um, uh, lawyer, and uh, no consultation at all took place. And so when he questioned what the invoice was for, he was informed that it was for consultation, um, but that none of it took place. These, like, what I'm bringing to your attention is that we're looking to work together. I agree with your delivery today, including people. But it will be done in a very proper manner. Do you have any comments to make regarding that? Yeah, I'd be <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an Ashley Zero through, so I said, what's this all about? We haven't spoken about this project yet, but come on, what's it about? I can't hear you, can't hear you well. I would be annoyed. <laughs> I would go down and see those people and say, well, what the hell is this all about? This is an invoice for something which you back up on. Come on, we know the rules, play the game, right? It's exactly what we did. We've got an ex-councillor sitting up the front there. And uh, he knows full well this uh, thing because we brought this to the attention of the entire council, of which he was a part. And we also brought it uh, to the mayor personally. 
and nothing was done. But I'll well, you, you, need to, you need to document that stuff, and then if it goes to the next stage, which is a hearing or something, then you have evidence that you did your very best to consult, you didn't get um, the same return coming back to you, in the story, as far as the court's concerned, well, that's been my experience. Sure. I won't uh, take any of your time. So thank you for uh, answering the questions. I'm sure the audience have got the gist of, uh, of what I'm saying. Sure. Try and deal with me in the future, right? <laughs> <laughs> what I would like to add to that is that I am the developer. And what um, is uh, got on the mic for is the fact how many times I'm an RE and at the site of the material. How much time the Maori going to take a slice of the cherry? Because what happened was they'd already approved the subject <coughs> which had been developed. I built the buildings on it, and because I then created all those buildings and separate titles, I was then asked again to hand out money to the, to the Maori. Now, how many times are the Maori going to keep asking for a bite of that cherry? Well, I can't answer that because this is because what's going on. I can only tell you how I deal with these matters. Right. And so many other things like that are going on. Well, like what? Well, the, the, the actually false statements that Maori are making in the council. I mean, in true fact, the subdivider shouldn't have to pay the Maori anything. It should be the council who are doing the, who are approving the development. They are the ones that have got to consult with them. Yes, but you're bound by the resource management act to consult. I mean, that would say that the developer has to consult with the local EU. Oh, okay, so it's not right. a project or the council's project? But the council tossed the responsibility on for the developer. You and I should have a chat about this after. I think it's uh, probably taken up enough time to do it here. We might have other questions. But I understand your concern. There is a way through it. Kia ora, buddy. Uh, I've got a question uh, about the principle of active protection. And just I know I've heard that being used a lot lately around not only, um, particularly in social issues as well. Could you talk a little bit about active protection and what that means and today but, and how it's being interpreted? Well, it's really a recognition of the fact that Māori have a stake in most things. Um, and so with our, with our food here, for example, um, there's an obligation um, on whoever's doing something underneath the RMA Act to uh, consult with the right people. Um, obviously, you must be dealing with the right people because they're sending the bills. Um, but it's you know, really simple kind of way that they talk through about that's all that you as an ordinary citizen can do. Um, the next stage, which is um, a, a government responsibility, even a local government responsibility, that in making bylaws and legislation or whatever, they have to take into account what impact is this going to have on terms of um, and so things like Putting in a new water pipeline, for example, there's a whole lot of issues associated with that, where the water's coming from, where it's going to, what happens if it blows up, um, are you going to dig the pipe in, are you going to pull the surface, all those kind of things. So, um, 
Great Queen Father, <coughs> my Green Father, and my Father. It's taken us four generations to get to a place where we believe it's almost legal. The plain thing is almost legal for us. So, as in most community groups, some further advanced than the others, and so people like me, hey, we're doing okay. But there are a lot of people who still haven't got that far. They're not doing okay. And I think those are the ones that you're referring to. Um, we'll get there. I know we will. We've got a conference happening this coming week where we've got some of our leading heavyweights talking about what they propose to do to lift the game for their people. So that's um, my title holding, so she can do that, my career. So I'm just thinking about their strategy for achieving that. Um, we've got um, Chris Robson, who's a hockey chick, who runs Tiny and Holdings over the hill. He's going to come speak about um, what they're intending to do. Now, in many of the cases of those legal organisations, what they do is put money out for scholarships, put money into their own hot seats, put money into their own super speed. I wish I was able to get into the October one, it's pretty good. <laughs> no, we actually got it a lot. Um, so that sounds pretty good to me. Um, so it, it, it's different across the board for everybody, and it's the same with all the community, I okay? think. You know, nobody's all there at the same time. Um, I understand the concern that um, you're expressing, um, and I've tried to introduce a system where we find which family a strong leader, we try and coalesce that family around that leader, and then we try and coalesce the wider families around that family, and then we try to experience the hubble, which is um, a combination of different families. And that seems to be another three hundred years ago, or two years ago,
Maori secondary school <coughs> student results take a significant climb, particularly in the last 15 years. But the playing field was never even at the start. And although they have moved considerably up, they still lag behind the balance in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So the answer is in terms of that, we've come a long way, but there's still a long journey to get us. So I just want to talk about my story. So I was adopted in 1960. My parents were in the uh, 40s and 50s. They couldn't adopt white babies, but they could not adopt mixed race babies. So I've got a brother who's Samoan, who's me who's Maori and Spanish, and a sister who's Roman. I work in mental health. My question is, and it might be a little field, is what are we doing for mental health? Well, we have a number of people involved in the community working, calling down here right now, and certainly involved in um, dealing with the homeless, um, many of whom have mental health issues, as I understand it. Um, I know that, um, in Wapanyu anyway, they are looking at that and looking at how they can address the homeless issue. It's not surprisingly that many of the homeless people our Polynesian um, need that kind of assistance. So, you know, it, it's, it's not a complete package across the board, but there are sincere efforts being made that I know of. Thank you. So, In an ideal world, would the tribunal keep going indefinitely, or would it one day write its final report and its, its permission back? When I was director, that was the aim, to do ourselves out of the job. Um, but um, while we still have, uh, I think, you know, you take any social indicator you want, mental health, um, health itself, education, employment. For some reason, Māori are all on the bottom of those steps. Um, so, there's something going on in our society which hasn't been properly addressed. And that, I think, is the ongoing role of bodies like the Waitangi Tribunal. Is there an injustice here? If so, what is it? And what do we do to fix it? That's my view. As things 
that will increase with more opportunities, you know, treaty, uh, uh, getting lands back, that sort of thing. Do you think that, even though it's a level in the playing field, do you feel that sometime the package are going to start pushing back? In other words, they don't want that level playing field to be too level. You can stand, things about scales is if one's been down here for a while at the bottom, then it grows back up again, suddenly they'll want to push it back the other way. So in other words, it's alright to have a place in the sun, but want a place in the sun with extras. And the other side say, no, it's our turn now, and we'll push back. So ping pong all the time. Do you feel it at all? Do you feel like modern day Pagihar in the Altero like now are happy with everything as it is, or do you think there's some that still say, now it's our turn to push back? I've seen a lot of, a large part of my corporate work in industrial relations. And it's exactly the same thing. You know, at one time the union's up here, the next time they come here, the employers are up there, and it just swings around and out. And I think that's what you're talking about. The pushback has already started in my time. Um, I see it all the time. Um, I'm not sure if I need to stop but the good thing is that there are more sensible people, I believe, in our world to make sure that we still look to that even playing field as something aspirational and worth going for. Um, and certainly that's where my effort is going to go. Just like in that regard, you've got the way the uh, state have there, so it's about how good it is. So yeah. the laws want to put their chief work there, that they want to be the top of. And the idea is all of us to Well, I should have said that my, um, <laughs> my Cornish ancestors actually came across in 1066 and were in the conflict. I'm not I'm actually French. But um, <laughs> when I tell that story on the mother, I think it's like, you make it can I um, suggest that we actually uh, have a, about a five to ten minute break. Um, there is cold water in the lounge. They use this time to just talk to each other uh, and, um, and we'll see what kind of questions come out of that conversation. But I think it would be kind of useful for us to have an opportunity to actually talk to each other before we carry on. And as I said, these views are not really designed for comfort and we have them here for now. So uh, we'll try to be back here. And uh, I'll say five minutes because usually it takes another five minutes to so get back here. So it's ten past we can start again. There are cold drinks, books for sale, flags for sale. We start again at ten past. Yes!
New World started it when they took a sliver down the side. Zespri, on, on a reserve, has compromised the mana, in my opinion, the mana of Moa. It looks like a little jazz cap, a little kid's party cap, as you go down Monganui Road, where you used to be able to see Moa in its glory. Now you have to go past Sesbury, and it could have been Kmart, it could have been McDonald's, it could have been IBM, it could have been Space Lab, it could have been Portatoro, it could have been anything. But that, I don't understand how, how valuable land is. But I also feel sad that the mana of Moro and other important Tonga have been, it's, it's been compromised and, and disrespected. And to me, Mamanganui, Moro, might as well be called Zestrigan now. And that was on a reserve that the Mount Borough Council seemed to have more idea about the honouring the Tonga, the respect. And I want to know, does that sort of tribute honour legend Tonga precious treasure come into the discussion with the resource consenting at Tauranga or any other council? And if it doesn't, how does it? And how, what sort of help does Māori need from people like me to say, hey, that's a good thing, taking away the mana of the mountain, or the river, or the harbour, or the Thank you. 
think you should send me an email maybe. <laughs> I'll try to help you see that. Is the treaty ever going to be enshrined in the Constitution? Well, it depends on whether we remain as we are, we become a republic. If we were to become a republic, the place in the treaty would be in the Constitution, probably. Um, I would say it's going to happen in my lifetime too, but um, certainly the movement towards becoming a republic is strong. I was fortunate in a way because for the first nine years of my life I was an only child. And so, um, unlike many other modern families, even larger ones of children, um, I was in a kid, so I got all the attention. Um, and I had a very ambitious mother um, who, and I spoke about this at a funeral, she was probably the best person I ever knew how to load you up with a guilt trip. <laughs> you know? Doing your doing not doing your homework was not an option, um, and that kind of thing. So um, I, I guess it's different circumstances and different families, isn't it? And that was just the circumstances why I was going to go And so I consider myself to be very lucky um, that that happened. It's not not the same for um, many other my families, of course, um, and I do admire those who do manage to rise above that. Um, sometimes it's what they help them. So I know there are many people in our community who provide that type 
through from maybe for next year. How, and I imagine treaty stuff forms a big part of that. How would you envisage the teaching of this sort of stuff moving forward? Um, yeah, are there any teachers in the room? Uh, at the tribunal, we had a uh, we had a, a small PR tribunal, and one of the tasks I gave them was, you need to prepare um, a whole lot of um, lesson plans that can go to to teachers and immediately they can pick that up and get started. I know that um, many teachers feel that they're under switch in terms of getting this teaching resources really like that, and so they they were particularly popular. Um, so, you know, it is a lot of um, on all sorts of subjects, um, but mostly to do with the treaty. So, I would envisage that they have the same sort of thing um, on a much larger scale happening, um, if we're going to be serious about teaching um, treaty material in schools. I guess um, the level is going to start coming in at his um, senior school, although I'm happy to be put along with it. is the relationship that the settler governments had sort of in the uh, late 60s, 70s and 80s, that's 80s, um, <coughs> that, that, is, that is incredibly complex. How, how it would be extremely difficult, it would almost be a university degree to understand it and come to terms with it. How are we going to get, get that across to the, to the wider community? Those complexities, the, the, uh, the challenges that the treaty had with the settler governments at the time. It's a bit like preparing this tonight. There's a lot of information. And we have to drown in the paper required to look at this. And um, I think it's the same with that. Somebody needs to be in a position where they can you know, they can um, uh, look at all the material, pick out what the essential points are and that's what as a basis for um, the publication of some kind of a um, I mean, that's how I would approach it. Other people might have another way, but that's how I would do it. Another question I've got, if I may, is um, the material that we read on the history of New Zealand, you know, you can, I, I often feel that, that some pseudo-historians Will write history to support their their position, their prejudice, and the war prejudices I have. But there's other bona fide historians who sit down there and just try and expose history as it is. How do we distinguish between two different groups of historians? Um, that, that I find is a challenge. Can you help? Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
when I was recruiting um, the story of the Tribunal, I was going with the Max. And um, if you had any reserves, there was no mice, you weren't going to work for me. Um, so, I mean, the way to, to uh, judge whether the history really looked the person's background, what they've done. Are they you know, sincere about it? Do they, do they know what they're talking about? And usually, after a conversation of about 10 minutes, we can work out whether this person's on the level or is putting on the back there. You know, so that's from a recruitment um, perspective. When you get out to the wider world, you know, we all know about um, claims about the media not telling the truth. And there are um, some people who are the same when they write their history. Um, it was one of the things I had to warn my staff against because they would go out to visit the people that they were, say, doing a historical research report about. Um, and you'd always caution them to, um, you know, if you're getting a oral account from someone, see if you can get other verification of that same account. Um, or make sure that when you write that up, it's qualified, you know. Some are so silly, but somebody else said, So it introduces some balances with history and writing. Um, it's only something that comes with a lot of experience, I think, too. Um, it's not something that a young uh, researcher picks up straight away. It takes a bit of experience. You know, imagine you go out to visit someone and you're interviewing them and you go, their family history, it's very hard not to feel sympathetic towards that person and the story that they're telling you and to step back some stage and be objective. Um, so there is a way of um, dealing with that. Um, and so you always have someone over the top of that person making sure <coughs> that the objectivity is being preserved in the writing of that particular. Me. I was just thinking, I, um, I know that when, having worked in the past for the Ministry of Education, that when new curricula are being developed, yeah. they get a very broad range of the team together. Perhaps they might invite you, hopefully, buddy, and, you know, to, <laughs> to actually oversee, you know, to make sure that these balances and things and the new resources are commissioned and all that. You know, they have to get a big, broad bunch of people who sort of are, are um, established and people will believe, you know, and marvellous people, I don't know, like Anna Salmon or, you know, they have to find people who know what they're bloody talking about. <laughs> and, um, and that's what I understand from my experience, you know, in the Ministry of Ed is what is, has happened over here. So you'd hope they'd do that, but they'd have to get onto it. Hopefully it's happening as we speak. Because if it's going to be out in schools next year, But there is a wonderful book by Margaret MacDonald, who is Canadian, now a history professor at Oxford, called The Use and Abuse of History. For anyone interested in this topic, this I've ever read of it. Margaret MacDonald, the use and abuse of history. Mm -hmm. 
Many of us are all over Terry and others, yourself, who's mentally gained by resolutions, telling the story. 13,000 people came to this mission in Queensland and down on the screen. And we were amazed that the local residents didn't know the story. I also go regularly to the Anzac days in Lake Mongolia. Three, four, five thousand people gather quietly. Grandpa holding the grandkids' hands, very quietly, very respectful. And it's a powerful time. But across the road, on this world service, I think today, a few hundred people. We're still struggling. How many people here knew that this last Anzac uh, morning was world service in Lake Mongolia?
um, I have the same upbringing, you know, you will learn English. We will not speak Māori to you at home from my parents. And so I got all the way to um, going to university and realised that I miss, miss out on something. Um, and my efforts to recover have been cut from the same place. But I did buy it and I'm sitting on the And I regret that very much. I regret that. Um, <coughs> I, I was just telling somebody else before how. Um, Sense of pride in, in our country and how we 
live and how uh, two cultures can, can uh, work together. And I say this because as, as an officer in the army, from your beginnings, you are expected to attend training on a marae, a noho marae. You learn to speak. As an officer in the, in the New Zealand Defence Force, a lot of our officers, 99% of them, can kōrero in Māori or do a mihi And I think that's a wonderful framework, one way in which our country can look towards the Defence Force as a framework to working together so that there's benefits for people who train in the Defence Force when they come out and they're exposed uh, in that cultural setting because there's a commitment to their treaty. There's a commitment to how we do business in the Defence Force, taking the framework of the Whare Tapapha, uh, the Mayhama model, I'm not sure if many of you will know some of these things, but uh, our young soldiers, our naval people, our air people, are brought up into a system that helps them from day one embedded into our Māori. And I think it's just a lovely stepping forward of an organisation that might lead the way in showing how we can do better as a country.
check the New Zealand Museum from the Australian one and the English one. Uh, this is all in Northern France. And, uh, um, and the Indian one is an Indian one. Um, then what the New Zealand one needs is a strong Maori element. And so they're pushing us to um, try and incorporate it into the New Museum building um, some kind of recognition of the Maori pioneer challenge in the first world uh, as a way of doing that. Now, there's a family here in Thailand, the Abel family, knows that. But anyway, um, Lieutenant Abel was credited as being the first man over the wall and into the town to look around the town. Um, so, the Capsule family from Waikato said, no, that's not true. Because it was our grandfather, when he had the Capsule, who found a board and put it across the stitch and ran into the town. And we know he did that because he came back with a couple of chickens to the boys. <laughs> <laughs> so that story has more than a real truth to it, I think. <laughs> but uh, no, the, the project's going well, thank you, Sherry.
in our community, we need to know more about our story. We need to know more about the story of the treaty, Tertullity. We need to know more about the story of the battles here at Gate Park, at Tarama, the Bush campaign. Um, she talked about the Ho-Ho. Henny, uh, who's pictured in that uh, glass window over there, fought for the King Tana, but uh, then went with the Rotorua Te Arawa group uh, and fought against the Ho-Ho in Pukki uh, uh, and So, um, as a good missionary, as a good Anglican, she wasn't going to have to fire at that religion, so <coughs> I'm not sure they didn't get a, a foothold anywhere. So, uh, as I said, you know, that's an incredibly Anglican story, a lot of this, and, um, and we keep forgetting that. Uh, so, um, thank you. Hanui to Miki, Aroha, Kia Kiakwe, Eho, Kia Tō Kia Kiakwe, the time of Ramari, the character. We appreciate it.